South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And a very good morning across the hill country, South Texas, wherever you happen to be listening on the Internet. Of course, I can't tell you what the weather is uh, once you get too terribly far away. But around here, it's just kind of a... A humid, cool morning. It was in the 40s in the hill country in the 50s here in San Antonio. But a nice day. And, you know, we're getting ready for Thanksgiving in a couple of weeks. Uh, so many things to do. Getting that vegetable garden going, getting those flower beds replanted. You know, if you wait until the day before Thanksgiving to plant all your flowers, it looks like you waited until the day before Thanksgiving to plant all your flowers. If you want it to look like you've really planned ahead, this would be a great weekend to get out and get the cyclamen for the shady areas, the pansies for the sunny areas, the stock and the petunias and the dianthus and the cabbage and kale, all of those things could really make your place look absolutely gorgeous for the upcoming holidays. And those are things that also last all winter long. So anyway, we've got lots of things to talk about and a uh, couple of open lines. Look like Clint and Mark are going to be my first two callers, but you could be numbers three and four if you dial that number. You just heard it, 210-599-5555. Oh, and so many other important things to talk about. But I tell you what, you know, I hate to keep people waiting, and uh, so let's just get started, and Clint is first in line. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How you doing? Uh, just another nice day out there, a day when, uh, you know, you start out in uh, with a jacket and long, long pants on, and before the day's over, you're in short sleeves and shorts, so I don't mind that kind of weather at all. Nope, and that extra hour should go a long way. <laughs> I I guess it did. I uh um I you know, but I I did wake up probably feeling a little more rested this morning, but uh it's uh, I just hate giving up our evening daylight cuz I have so much stuff to do when I get home from work in the evening and you know, I guess it's going to force me to not work quite as hard in the evenings, but it just means I'll get a little further behind on lots of those projects. So, what's going on in your world today? Uh, a few more questions on the quarantine for the trichoderma. I got 16 gallons soaking since last night. Now, uh-huh. the cooler weather, is that uh, last night was like 55 degrees. Is, is yeah. the cooler weather going to affect the production of the trichoderma and anything that's soaking in that tea? Should I go not- longer than just overnight? No, not not significantly. Uh, the microbes kind of make a shift in that in the bacteria, especially we've got uh, psychrophilic at cooler temperatures, mesophilic at medium temperatures, thermophilic at warmer temperatures. So, uh, but when you're looking at fifteen thousand different kinds of bacteria, you're going to have some slight shifts back and forth in which ones are reproducing at the highest rate, but. Uh, the fungi are not nearly as sensitive to temperature, and trichoderma, you know, is produced uh, pretty warm and also pretty cool. So I would not feel like you have to adjust uh, adjust things at all. Just as you as you know, you want to be making your compost tea pretty much at room temperature, uh, so that when you put it out, you're putting out the microbes that are going to remain active at that time. But uh, I sure wouldn't. I sure wouldn't go to any additional trouble or make any changes uh, just because the nights are 10 degrees cooler than they have been. Okay, so I'm assuming what you're saying the trichoderma is already in the water. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. The trichoderma, the trichoderma grows on the cornmeal. But its reproductive state, and uh, it's been a long time since I took mycology, but um, it is going to be 
Whereas, whereas the trichoderma forms on the cornmeal, the reproductive structures that that particular fungus forms are going to be free in the water. So you're going to be transferring them to uh, uh, to your big batch with all the stimulants in there and with your oat bran and everything else in there. Um, and, uh, and then they're just going to reproduce even further. Okay. And once I pour that uh, trichoderma in the area where I had my avocados up and die how long is that going to take take effect where i should replant those avocados well we don't we're not real sure what killed the avocado so um not at all (laughs) i i i would probably give it a few weeks but i'm not at all sure that it was a fungal issue we just had so many different things going haywire at one time over the past couple of years so i'd i'd probably well in in all honesty avocados i you know that we may or may not get a winter that's cold enough to bother them i wouldn't hesitate to purchase your avocados because as you know they're sometimes hard to find but if I were planting avocados, and I don't in Bernie, we're just too much colder up there. But if I were planting avocados, I would be buying them now, but putting off planting them until probably March or so, since uh, the weather is so uncertain. Oh, yeah, I've, I've already got them set aside. Problem is, I that's why I finally did that soil test. Once I put them in the ground, they never looked as good as they did when they were in a bucket. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of different things that account for that. All all plants are happiest when they are somewhat root bound. Uh, when you you think they would be, when you put them, you know, out in soil, you think they'd just be joyous. Oh man, here we go, we get to really take off and grow. But um, it's just kind of like a person that's used to being lived indoors suddenly set being set free out in the wilderness. It takes a little adapting, and long term, it's wonderful. But uh, it, it first, uh, your your plants are not drying out as evenly, and so uh, it, there's there's a little bit of ad, ad, adaptation that goes on when you put them out. So uh, that's to be expected, not just with avocados, but with virtually everything you plant. Nothing else. Yeah, the thing is, I've probably had four or five in the past. It's just folded up and died on this, within about two months. That's why yeah. I did the test. I dumped a whole ton of... Uh, compost in the area, the C90 minerals, mm-hmm. and everything, and help, hoping to, to build that up for whatever was lacking or whatever was there, knocking them out. Well, looking at things across the board, at the reason plants die, I'm going to tell you that um, either water or oxygen problems in the soil probably account for 90% of the plants that die. Sometimes it's too much in the way of water, sometimes it's too little. In the case of oxygen, many times it's uh, too little in the soil because of compaction and other things. And uh, I, in my you know, guesstimation that that's probably the majority of the plants that die, that's the reason. Then, and you know, much, much lower down the scale, we're looking at diseases, we're looking at chemical residues, we're looking at a lot of other things. But, um, and, and sometimes it just takes a while to figure out uh, exactly what moisture level in the soil and conversely, because uh, the moisture level is directly proportioned to, to the uh, oxygen level. The more moist it is, the less oxygen there is in the soil. And sometimes it just takes a while to figure out what any given type of plant is going to be happiest at. And uh, 
you know, ask me about orchids. I've grown tens of thousands of orchids for most of my life. Ask me about avocados. I live in an area where I really can't plant them. So I'd, the last thing I'm going to claim to be is an expert on avocados. So uh, um, you're a very observant person. You keep good records. And, yeah, just keep your eyes open. Check the soil every day. Um, you know, sometimes maybe dig a hole six inches deep and see what the moisture level is six inches down, a little ways out away from where you're planting your plants. They're just, you're never going to run afoul of having too much oxygen in the soil. And if you're going to make a mistake on watering, uh, err on the side of being too dry rather than err on the side of being too wet. If you're, if you're keeping plants a little too dry, you're going to see burned edges on the leaves. At worst, you're going to see a little shriveling in the bark. If you're keeping plants too wet, usually the first sign you have is when they turn up their toes and die. So plants are more forgiving staying on the dry side, and they give you a little bit more warning that they're unhappy uh, than they do when they're staying on the wet side. So, um, again, uh, if you can find a good avocado grower or somebody in your area that has been successful with them, you know, sit at their feet, so to speak, and say, tell me everything you've done that you think makes your avocados do well. And uh, you can learn, and then you can share it with me, and I'll share it with everybody else. Now, would peroxide help replenish the oxygen in the ground? To a limited degree, yes. It does what we call flocculating the soil. Of course, peroxide breaks down into just water and oxygen. But on the other hand, peroxide is uh, antimicrobial. And we don't use too much of it because we can wipe out the beneficial microbes in the soil that we're trying so hard to establish. What about aerating all around uh, the tree? Hey, you're never going to go wrong with it. You know, I look at what the good arborists do occasionally for commercial reasons. They want to pave an area around a big old oak tree or a big old pecan or something like that. And they go in and put perforated pipes down into the soil through the asphalt or through the concrete or whatever else. Um, so anything you can do to aerate the soil is going to be a good thing. Now, I'm not into constant physical aeration, and if you're going to use actually an aerifier, it's important that you use what we call a core aerifier that actually pulls out a little plug of soil. So many of these aerifiers, and especially these stupid shoes that they want you to walk around in, uh, they're, they're what we call a dibbler, and it's just like driving a nail into a board. You're just pressing the pressing things outward and you're making a hole but you're making the soil surrounding the hole harder than ever so if you're going to do any aerifying do not use a dibbler type of aerifier use a core type of aerifier and uh, uh, long as you're not actually messing up the roots of the plant I don't think there's any way you could overdo that overdo that okay now on the compost tea how long does it take to soften the soil in the areas in the field that were like concrete Depends on how bad the soil was to begin with. Um, I would say, and it all depends also on rainfall. Rainfall is just magical when it comes to helping the soil out. But uh, I have found in my own garden that it, maybe six months. Uh, I, you know, and again, my, my prime example, and my soil was like concrete. shit with a digging bar, and it just bounced. And uh, so places that I was going to plant fruit trees... I just put down a pile of compost, made a little uh, crater in the top of it, uh, and this was in about no July or August, and I knew I wouldn't get my uh, my fruit trees until January. 
So I just did that, watered it periodically, and in effect, I wasn't dumping compost tea on it, but I was creating the same effect by pouring water through compost on there. And boy, in January when I got my trees, you could have dug that soil with a spoon. It was so much softer. So I'd, I'd say six months. I'm going to keep hitting that tea hard once I get some more rain. Well, then with that to hoping to keep that area nice and healthy. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. And and you've learned a lot. I mean, when you look at what you've learned in the past month between getting your materials together and learning about the importance of oxygens and things like that, uh, making the compost tea for you is just going to get easier and easier. And uh, you'll never overdo it with compost tea. Good deal. Well, look, quick, last quick question. Is there floor cam still available on the, uh, the St. Augustine, or is that done for the year? Uh, you're going to have to make a few calls to find out. I would check with Dell's Grass Farm south of San Antonio. Uh, Dell's probably grows more Floritam than anybody else in the area. If he doesn't have it, check with Thomas Stone and Landscape. Uh, uh, their home office is in Bulverde. They have a material yard on the northeast part of San Antonio. But start with Dell's. They're a pretty good company, and they, uh, they've grown a lot of uh, Floritam in the past. Well, their call taker doesn't realize what they're carrying because they say the only thing they carry is Raleigh. Well, if they've changed, um, maybe maybe they've changed. But uh, uh, check in with uh, Thomas Stone Landscape, and if you want to talk to the boss, ask for Bill Thomas and ask him. And uh, he's a good guy. He'll share with you what's available and what isn't. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Good to talk to you, Clint. Thank you. All right. How did we use up 15 minutes? i uh, got to get a break in here. Mark, you're next. Right now, I get to talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. Had so much fun earlier this week. Uh, Danny Bowes from Southwest Metal came out, and we did a couple of things uh, with radio station. But uh, just to get a chance to visit with the man behind the best roofing company in town, it's just a real pleasure. In fact, I think I'm probably going to spend about another $10,000 with him on a different roof. But that's a whole other story. I just I love the way Southwest Metal Roofing Systems works works because they do the job right the first time every time uh his expression is do it once do it for life because that's what a southwest metal roofing systems roof is all about doesn't have to be replaced stands up to weather stands up to hail uh, it's just the last roof you'll ever put on your home and so many different choices he actually showed me a new style of roofing that i've never seen before it's just Southwest Metal Roofing Systems is an incredible company and been doing incredible work for a lot of years. Truly is the last roof you'll ever put on your home. They do new construction. They do roof replacements. You're going to save money on your insurance bill every month because they're so energy efficient. Many insurance companies will give you a discount on your homeowner's insurance. Mine certainly does. Farm Buser is one that uh, I have my home under. And, uh, Oh, it's just, I just can't say enough nice things about them. If you are thinking about a new roof, you just need to give them a call and learn what all the options are. It's 210-822-6868, 210-822-6868, and they've got a special going on right now, 10% off the cost of the, the price of the job, or if you prefer, instead you can take uh, two years of interest-free financing. Up to you, and it's up to Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. My next two callers are going to be Mark and Mary, and Mark is up first. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Off to a good start. It's a nice morning out there. Yes, sir. I had a quick question. I have an uh, autumn blaze maple. Yes, sir. And um, 
before the weather changed, the, the leaves were, you know, throughout that heat were turning brown on the edges and I was right. worried that this thing was going to dry uh, dry out and die. And I'm just wondering uh, what I could do to maybe help it through the winter. It's, well, you really don't need to do much of anything. I would definitely fertilize it this fall. Uh, wouldn't hurt to mulch it. Be sure the root flare is exposed. And uh, if you want just a general regimen, go to dirtdoctor.com and look at what Howard calls a sick tree treatment. And what I like to say is a tree doesn't have to be sick to benefit from that. That's sort of going to tell you everything you need to know about helping trees that, you know, were stressed a bit during this hot summer and as you've probably heard me say uh, plants have what we call a compensation point and that is how much energy it takes them just to stay alive just their basic metabolic processes and anything above and beyond that they can put into growing and looking beautiful the compensation point was so high this summer between the temperature the dry wind the lack of moisture plants just didn't have anything left over to do any growing and the first sign that shows up is the you know kind of burned edges and so um, if we go back to more typical weather and that means both temperature and moisture your uh, your maple should do extremely well in the meantime, if you want to do one thing that will help it, because it's still getting its roots established. It takes several years for a maple to really get established. But every time you think about it, pick up your hose and just spray up and down the trunk and the limbs. Don't keep the soil overly moist. But a young plant that still has smooth bark, as I'm sure your maple does, will absorb a tremendous amount of moisture directly through the bark. That, along with just fertilizing, little mulch, um, your maple should come out beautifully for you next spring. Now, you said to expose the root flare. Um, I'm wondering, because this is a brand new tree, maybe about an inch uh, in diameter. Um, Very good. Would exposing that root flare uh, over the winter, would that, I, I don't know if the cold would affect the roots or... No, no. These stuff. maples are extremely cold hardy, and uh, the stress that it takes off of the tree by exposing the root flare... Um, is going to be, you know, far, far better than anything that uh, the plant says, you know, hey, I've got a root, air around my roots uh, uh, that I haven't had before, and the tree's going to love that. Because the structure, if you looked at the, especially the bark in effect on roots, it's totally different above and below ground. And um, what is supposed to be above ground, which includes those first roots, uh, is supposed to be exposed to the air. And when those things are buried, a lot of moisture around them, a lot of less oxygen around them, they're very, very unhappy. And the sooner you get those roots back to what Mother Nature intended. Remember, when, when a seed falls, when a, an animal buries the seed, when a seed falls and, you know, dust or dirt or something blows over the top of it, that plant is growing with its roots practically on the surface of the ground. Uh, and when we artificially stick them into a container and so few people take the time to pot things properly in the nursery industry these days, and that's a whole other story and a whole other soapbox I like to get on, but uh, the advantages of root flare exposure far, far outweigh any temporary shock it might put on the tree. Okay, I'll do that. And then one last question. Um, I, I have a bunch of orange and banana trees. that are all brand new. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out what I can do to protect them for, through this uh, coming winter. Do you have the common bananas, or do you have the fancier rojos, red leaves, and uh, Cavendish and things two, like that? Two grand, two grand main, and two uh, blue Java. 
Okay. Remember that, you know, many, many banana trees freeze to the ground and come back every year. And as long as you have basically any of the lower part of the trunks, the stems left on them, um, they're going to come back out. And the same thing, uh, the, you know, your citrus, all of your new plants, um, keeping, keeping that trunk protected. And if these things are small enough, you can cover the whole tree. But if uh, the weather gets severely cold, the area that's, you know, the first foot or three feet up the trunk on your woody trees, the first foot to 18 inches on a succulent plant like a banana palm, if you can keep that warm, you don't really have to worry a whole lot about what the rest of the, happens to the rest of the tree because it's going to come back out true to what it was before. It's nice if you can uh, protect the whole thing. It would be wonderful if you could build a little greenhouse over it. But uh, that isn't usually practical, and the Weather Service tends to wait until the last minute to tell us that we've got severe weather coming. So focus on uh, the lower third of the plant, and that way, even if it does freeze, it'll come back out. Could I use burlap on those bananas, or would that, I don't know if it'd be, you know, touching the the outer part of the tree, would it damage it? Burlap is fine. Dry burlap uh, is a very good insulator. Wet burlap, not so much so. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, burlap is fine, as is just plain old newspaper or cardboard or whatever else. But if we do get moisture and then it, it gets very cold, um, that's not going to be as effective as dry. Now, remember, ice is basically 32 degrees, and that's why you can be warm inside of an igloo, even though you're surrounded by ice. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, frozen burlap is a lot more brittle and just you know may not be as good for the trees. But burlap in general, yes, it's a, it's a fine material for insulating, cushioning for a lot of different uses. Okay, I will will look into that. I really appreciate your help. Thank you so much. Well, and if you're in our area, if you ever need burlap, I guess we might run out someday, but we get a lot of our uh, big ceramic pots and things, especially things that come out of Asia, come to us packed in burlap bags, old coffee bags and things, and we are forever giving away burlap. So don't go out and spend a ton of money on burlap. But unless you unless you have to, <laughs> we'd love to take that expense out of your out of your life, and it's uh, less for us to put in dumpster and recycling. So uh, let us help you any way we can, Mark. Okay, I appreciate your help. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Let's go ahead and talk to Mary. Good morning, Mary. Are you there, Mary? Uh, yes. Good morning. Um, I have a a list of products mostly today. Okay. Uh, when you when you talk about whole ground cornmeal, mm-hmm. I I can only get grits, and so I got the grits and put them in the blender. Is that is that the same thing? Well, grits are basically. I know the cornmeal's been treated. They don't use lye the way they do to make hominy, but um, I, that's a good question. I would think that grits are probably okay. But I would, you know, visit a, a bird store or a feed store. Um, it, it, the cornmeal doesn't technically doesn't have to be ground. And I know you can buy just whole corn at virtually any feed store in the southern United States. So that's what 
I would be doing. Just when it's ground, you're exposing a lot more surface area, and so you're getting a lot more of the trichoderma growth and a lot more of the benefit. But uh, I honestly don't know about grits. I'd have to do a little more reading on how grits are produced. I love grits, but I've never made or I've never seen how they're made, so I, I really don't know the answer to that question. But uh, you can buy, generally, if you know anybody has chickens, they always buy corn chops uh, to feed chickens, yeah, and think, that's just... In fact, I think that's what I got was corn chops. I'm sorry, oh, that, and I'm you're in good shape. Corn. Yeah, no, that's that's just fine. That's great. That's okay. All right, all right. Very good, very good. Okay, so now yesterday I heard you talk about seaweed mm-hmm. and and you were talking about putting it in a foliar spray but i think and and only using it in foliar but that was just for the mold that that person because you can use seaweed on the ground can't you oh yeah of- yeah abs- absolutely <laughs> and uh and and seaweed does a whole lot of different things seaweed is a great great array of micronutrients in it and there's some things like controlling spider mites and improving cold hardiness. It works better if you put it on directly on the leaves. But as a drench, it is also outstanding. And a lot of your better companies put a lot of it in their fertilizer products. Yes. Okay. Well, see, I can only buy stuff on the Internet. <laughs> right. Right. So I had to buy a, a large well, I chose to buy the larger quantity of seaweed. It's just mm-hmm. still coming. But yeah. uh, how, what's the life of that? Uh, 10 years, 15 years. Try to keep it from getting super hot. But uh, yeah. there's no active ingredient in it per se. And um, um, so, yeah, it's just store it, store it at room temperature if you can. And uh, it's going to be good for a long, long time. Okay. So then... I found in the garage a package of old dulse that apparently I had, you know, in the refrigerator that I was using in my, uh, uh, you know, my nutrient stuff. Uh-huh. And so can I just can I just uh, what blend that up in in water too and use it, and or would I just now what what did you what did you say this was that you found? Dulse D U L S E, which is a uh, kelp type of flakes. Okay, yeah, I, it's not so. That's not. I'm. I'm not familiar with that. But yes, you can certainly blend that up and use it any way you like. Uh, most of the of the things, the good things that come out of seaweed, are not volatile. They don't, you know, turn into uh, a gas that goes away. That uh, you could, you know, if you can keep them dry, and and as long as you do that, they're going to be good for a long, long time. Okay. All right, I also found a bottle of Gardenville Terratonic. Mm-hmm. Super soil activator. Is that any yeah. good anymore? Yeah. yeah, it's still good. It may have a little bit off uh, aroma to it, but um, there's nothing in there that's really going to cause any harm. Some of, the, some of the liquid things in there probably have been denatured, so to speak, over time. But uh, there's still a lot of good stuff in there. I would go right ahead and use it. Okay. How about the garlic GP? Uh, should be fine. Should be okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So in some of my old notes, I saw that you said that downy mildew was what the fungus that kills in patients. So that's different than what kills my vinca. 
right? Oh, yeah. What kills Venkia is Phytophthora, and downy yeah. mildew is something which hits the roots of plants, especially roses, are one of the big problem areas, and it's not to be confused with powdery mildew. Those are two totally different fungal organisms. Powdery mildew is what you see on the leaves. Downy mildew is a much more serious problem that uh, affects the root systems of various plants. Okay. So if I have impatience that have been falling over you know at the base is is what they were so i kind of i first thought that it was the same thing as what was killing the vinca no no what what kills vinca is a uh, uh, spore that floats through the air called aerial phytophthora and it's totally different most of the time when i see vinca or when I see impatience uh, having problems at the soil level, it's usually a moisture issue, and it's occasionally damage from pill bugs and slugs. But now Florida does have more of the root rotting problem with the downy mildew, so I, I can't tell you for sure. But with impatience, I think one of the most important things I can tell anybody about impatience is just because an impatience plant is droopy does not mean it's dry. And a lot of people see things droop, which may be from heat, which may be from wind, which may be from a lot of different factors, and they run out in water thinking that the plants are dry. And no, they're just compounding the problem. First thing, the plants are rotting off at ground level. So um, my rule on impatience and other things, if it's droopy in the evening, don't worry. If it's still droopy the next morning, then it needs water. Yeah, and stick my finger in there, but I, I've heard you say that before. But anyway, I just seem to be having some trouble this year, but just different. And then the, one of the times I talked to you, you said put core, C-O-I-R, right? Right, into uh-huh. The pot. Well, that seems to keep it more moist than it does to keep it open. Am I well, it's, it's it's kind of like perlite in that it holds moisture, but it also, again, the water doesn't hurt anything. It's when the water drives the oxygen out of the soil. And core doesn't, probably doesn't hold as much water as uh, peat moss does. And there are some things that can stay more moist, but still have the oxygen that the roots need. Now, there are lots of different consistencies of core, and core can come everywhere from South America to Sri Lanka. And some of it's different quality than others. So I would always look for a relatively coarsely ground material. But um, staying moist a little longer doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. Just be sure you adjust your watering. Yeah, well, that's what I've had to do. But then when I... Now my potting soils are all different because I've tried different things and then I forget what's in what pot. <laughs> you need to keep better notes. <laughs> That's all I, I can know. tell you. I know, I know, I know. Okay, all right. So uh, kind of I think one last thing then. Uh, oh, no, well, we, we really didn't get on the garlic one. Now, can I? should I use that on the impatience? Uh, it's fine. It's more for foliar problems and for root problems that you're never going to hurt oh, anything okay. with garlic. Oh, yeah. As you said, that was a root problem. Ah, right. yes. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. So I also found I used to have worms. I used to grow worms, you know, have one of those little mm-hmm. arms for them. And I still have some of the grit left. And mm-hmm. it says this, this supplement is composed of a proprietary formula from natural occurring volcanic rock. So that mm-hmm. sounds good compared to how, when you all talk about volcanic rocks. Should I just 
put that on this on my bed. Uh, you can work it in. You can put it on any way you want. Uh, volcanic can be anything from basalt to lava to many different things from, you know, azomite to lots of different things. It's not anything you will go wrong with. Well, well, hurt. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's that's it for today. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you calling. You have a good day in Florida, and I know we'll talk again. And I get to talk at this point about Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. And that's Sam is just his business has helped so many people so much this year because it has been such an odd year with so many problems that we've just never seen before. But Sam, having been doing this for over 30 years, he has seen a lot of things that uh, most homeowners haven't seen. And with his consulting business, he has literally saved many, many landscapes. And other landscapes, he's just always helped them to look their very best, no matter what the weather has thrown at us. Sam's been, like I say, doing it for 30 years, always doing it organically. And his principal job is as a consultant. Now, he does compost tea work. He does compost tea application, some fertilizer work and things like that. But he's not, he's not a yard man, so to speak. He's not going to mow your grass and trim your trees. But if you would like somebody that you can rely on to look over your landscape periodically with you and talk about what's going right what's going wrong that's what his principal business is check everything out at uh, green grow spelled out g-r-o-w greengroworganics.com if it looks good to you call and set up a consultation many people have them come by on a monthly or a quarterly basis be sure you understand any charges up front but an awful lot of people have beautiful yards thanks to the help from sam sitterly and green grow organics if you need his phone number Five five nine five five six five area code two ten five five nine five five six five for Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk five fifty KTSA and FM one zero seven one. All right, back to the gardening on a nice morning. I think everybody's sleeping in this morning. Phone lines have not been real busy, so if you're used to getting. Uh, Getting that busy signal and having to hold for a long time probably be a, a good morning to dial. You know the number, 210-599-5555. Next in line is Judith. Uh, good morning, Judith. Good morning, Bob. It's your good morning. neighbor and Bernie. Yeah, well, it's good to, good to hear from you. It's a pretty morning in Bernie this morning, too. It is. It's beautiful. Um, I have a question. So we're getting um moved into the new house and we have um, a 1600 square foot uh, enclosed garden space which is fabulous but I want to do red raised beds in it uh-huh. um, so my husband and I wanted to know what is your advice for uh, prepping uh, an area for res- raised beds what are the best practices because this is the first time we're going to do it and we want to do it right Okay, well, the the first question or the first thing you have to do is look very carefully at the soil in that area because that's going to be underneath your raised beds. And if it's just good old Bernie soil, that's not a bad thing. But if the builder dumped a bunch of base material and other things that they put down and compact before they pour a foundation, that's going to have to come out unless you're planning on building a really high raised bed. And I mean, if you don't want to bend over, you can build a raised bed that's uh, three feet tall, and there's nothing all wrong with that. But uh, it takes a lot of soil and can be can be a bit on the expensive side. So first thing to do is to analyze the soil that's already there. Uh, let's assume that it is good dirt, just happens to probably be compacted. 
single most important thing you do is uh, add compost. And I wouldn't necessarily try to blend it in. If you start tilling that soil, you're going to bring up every every uh, weed seed that's been you know sitting there for 50 years waiting to sprout. So I would put about a one to two inch layer of compost over the areas where you plan to create those beds. Uh, keep it moist, give it a little time, and then at whatever time you're ready to start the actual construction of your raised beds, you'll find that that soil is much, much improved. And I, in creating raised beds, I, I don't put anything on the bottom of them. I want the plants to, you know, take root and begin growing in the raised portion of the bed. But I'm very happy if they can then put their roots down into the soil underneath because they'll become much better established, much more drought tolerant. And um, in that case, you know, raised beds are just a, a convenience in effect. Now, if somebody's trying to, you know, put a raised bed on a slab of rock, then you don't really have much choice about going much higher and um, to get enough soil for things to grow. But if this is uh, basically just kind of a courtyard area, which is what it sounds like you're describing, uh, I wouldn't go beyond, uh, you know, just uh, compost. If you want to put some more things, the lava sand would be good, a little green sand would be good, azomite would be good, but the compost and the microbes that it brings in are going to be the most important things as far as really improving the soil in that area. So the soil, um, so this home is, is older and they renovated it to make it look uh-huh. brand new. So the, the garden area, that, that dirt is like some of the nicest dirt I've seen. It's very um, soft, and uh-huh. she's had very good success in the past planting vegetables straight into the dirt. I just specifically want to make it an area to where I can walk around and maybe put some uh, pavers down just to get sure. from bed to bed. Um, yeah. So the wood um, to build the raised beds, that's cedar wood that we should use, correct? No, cedar will rot on you in two years' time. Oh. If you're if you're going to actually use wood, um, you're going to have to look for this what we call eco vantage lumber. It's a little hard to find, but call me here at the nursery sometime, and I'll give you more information on it. Um, if you're going to use a wood-like product, uh, Trex, the in effect artificial wood that's made with wood fiber and a plastic material, uh, will last you know thirty years and if you want something that looks like wood but isn't wood, uh, that is what I would use. I would not use cedar. I would not redwood. You can't afford it. It would work. But uh, don't use cedar and don't use treated wood. Uh, treated wood's going to rot out on you in about five years, and cedar's going to rot out on you in about three years. And uh, we're I'm in the process of replacing a lot of cedar that we thought was going to last a lot longer around here, and we're just replacing everything with this uh, EcoVantage, which is a specially prepared wood it's pine but it's super kill dry but that's a whole nother story but uh um at, at this point uh you don't have to use you don't even have to use wood a lot of people use cinder blocks people that want it to look nice will actually go in and put stucco over the cinder blocks uh you can use the native stone i'm not sure what the material your home is built of but uh, if, if your home you know, has a stone exterior, sometimes creating raised beds of stone, and you've got Garza masonry and stone there on the north edge of Bernie has wonderful rock for you. Um, so uh, it, there are a lot of different choices you can use to create your raised beds, but cedar would be a very bad choice. Okay, perfect. Well, 
that's going to be our Thanksgiving project with my father-in-law here. So <laughs> now my husband and I know what to do. Well, very good. Well, you let me know uh, any more information you need. I'll look forward to helping you. You know, there is one more question I have while I have you on the phone. We have these two huge Chinese parasol trees here on the property. Mm-hmm. Aren't they invasive, or what should we do? Um, like, is there maintenance or something we need to do to keep them from being invasive? Or no, just I mean, they're they're not beautiful, but yeah. They're not going to be that badly invasive, and they're not going to live very long. And don't park your car under them because they tend to fall and break uh, when we have even moderate storms. So uh, if you don't like them, take them out. Otherwise, uh, again, in some situations, I wouldn't want them growing right along a creek or somewhere where they could expand and become invasive. But in an upland area, they don't like our soil. They don't like our weather that much, so I doubt they're going to be an issue to you. Okay, perfect. Well, you answered all the questions this weekend. Thank you so much, Bob. My pleasure. Thank you for calling this morning. All right, let me get a break out of the way here. I get to talk to you for a moment about Wild Birds Unlimited. Wild Birds Unlimited is just such a special place, and they have a really neat deal coming up here uh, on the, uh, let me see, I believe it's on the 14th. And that is a Monday, and it's going to be at 9 o'clock in the morning. And they've got a really interesting man, Richard Crosley, who has written books, who's uh, written one of the definitive guides to bird identification. He's actually going to be at Wild Birds Unlimited to give a lecture, and I'm sure to sign copies of his books. But if you would like to really meet one of the who's who's guy uh, in in the world, uh, plan on putting the 14th on your calendar to attend. Now, there's no charge for attending. It is a fundraising event for a good project so if you want to make a contribution they will happily accept it but uh, it's not like you pay an admission fee at the door to get in and of course while you're at wild birds unlimited you want to check out all of the wonderful things things they have the seed which is a different blend for winter and summer the different suet products they have the different blends of different types of seed they have and of course all the delivery systems so to speak all the different kinds of feeders many of them with a lifetime guarantee uh, Wild Birds Unlimited just is, has the best, the best of everything. Ways to give your birds water, nesting boxes, uh, not the nesting season, but if you're hoping to attract purple martins, nothing wrong with putting them up this time of year and just putting excluders in there. You'll open them up in the spring, and if the birds find the boxes when they come, you just have a whole lot better chances of establishing a colony. I could go on and on talking to you about Wild Birds Unlimited, but uh, you need to just go see them. If you have questions, they always welcome your call at 210-479-BIRD. But do be sure and put this uh, seminar, uh, this talk on your calendar. That's the 14th of this month, 9 in the morning at Wild Birds Unlimited, right where they've been for a long time. They're in this shopping center at the corner of Northwest Military in Hebner. Wild Birds Unlimited. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening. And let's just get right straight back to the phone lines. Mark is next in line. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Off to a good start. It's going to be a nice day out there. My uh, my yard is not in a, has a good start. Uh, I have suffered drought in my uh, Bermuda grass with some bare areas, and uh, so three weeks ago I put out some uh, growing green fertilizer and uh-huh. uh, put some compost out. It's getting better, 
but I'm still going to have bare areas by the time winter comes. Okay. Is the winter rye an option uh, to help out keep the weeds, or do you recommend something else? I, winter rye is a good option. Do not get the old-fashioned Oregon rye. That stuff grows, you know, a foot tall, and it's so lush with moisture you can't mow it. It's just a nasty mess. But what they call perennial rye, which are not perennial in our area at all, I think are a great thing where you're looking for, uh, you know, just a nice green cover for the winter months. Now, most of the summer weeds you're not going to be concerned with to begin with. Uh, your winter weeds, things that are going to come up like dandelions and, uh, oh gosh, the henbit, the things like that, uh, I really wouldn't be that concerned about. But um, if you if you just want to avoid bare soil, if you want to avoid erosion, if you want to have something that looks nice, uh, by all means, the uh, the rise will do just fine. I my favorite is one uh, called Top Flight, T O P F L I G H T. Uh, there's a Pantera, uh, Douglas King sells one they call Greyhound. I guess everybody has their favorites. My favorite just has to be Top Flight, mainly because in the sun it stays much more compact and probably not going to have to mow it at all. If you do have to mow it, it might just be once through the winter months. And if I were putting it out, I guess the one thing I would tell you, it sounds like you've done a great job of soil preparation with fertilizer and the compost, but you're going to seed more heavily in the bare areas than you are over your existing grass. You don't want your rye to uh, <laughs> to be choking out what you have left in the way of long grass. Our general application rate is uh, on bare soil. We're going to use about a pound per 50 square feet on overseeding. We're going to use maybe a pound per 150 square feet. So just put it on more heavily in the in the area where you're putting it on dirt and put it on substantially lighter where you're putting it over your existing grass that uh, did manage to survive the summer. Now, should I expect to require more um, fertilizer since I'm putting that no. out into no. the actual growing? No, it's uh, um, it's your your soil where you've put out your your basic fertilizer. What you put out on the existing grass is going to be all this ryegrass needs, and you're probably going to feed again about next March anyway. So, uh, no, no extra, no extra precautions. You will have to water more frequently to get the rye up and growing. Once again, the watering regimen for your rye is going to be just fine for your existing grass as well. Once it's well established, it's going to be every two or three weeks if we have typical winter weather. But I tell you, it's been such a weird two years. I just don't know what to expect. I'm kind of ready for just about anything. I agree. I agree. I have one other question. What is yes, the, sir. Uh, well, first, two questions. Where can I get the top flight? Do you have it at Shades of Green? We have it. I think most uh, most good nurseries are going to have it in stock. Okay. Okay. And then what is in the color essentials that's not in the organic fertilizer that does so well? I put it out for my flowers in the vegetable garden and are they uh, that's, so much that's that's a great <laughs> that's a great question. Uh the color essentials is an improved form of a moisture product called Rose Glow and it is organic. It's just uh it is uh, whereas the what we call landscape essentials, what Medina calls growing green, that is a manure-based fertilizer, which they add a lot of other good things to. Your color essentials, your rose glow, is based on things like leather meal and feather meal and alfalfa, and it's just a just basically a different nutrient source, uh, but there it it works extremely well. 
Uh, well, it works on everything. It just seems to have a really good, good effect with uh, blooming plants. What we do here at the nursery is we call it our magical mix. We mix it half and half, half of either Color Essentials or Rose Glow mixed uh, with either the growing green or what we call landscape essentials and that's for great for flower beds for vegetable gardens the whole works and then we just use the uh, the straight manure based product on grass and shrubs and trees like that okay and one last question burr oaks when I cut them down I need to cut them away from the house do uh-huh. I need to put the uh, some uh, pruning spray on that no not at all not at all. Burr oaks are in the are in the white oak group, and it, technically any oak out there could get oak wilt, but you'll never know it if your burr oak gets oak wilt. It just doesn't affect them the way it does red oaks and live oaks. So, uh, um, and and even where you're doing live oaks and red oaks, it doesn't have to be pruning spray. It can be just old latex paint. Anything that will keep that wound sealed for about nine or ten days gives it all the protection it needs. But on your burr oak. No, nothing at all needs to be done there. Just remember when you are pruning, when you're cutting a limb back to the trunk or to a major limb, be sure you leave that little quarter inch, three-eighths inch, where the cells look a little different, what we call the branch collar. Don't make your cut right up flush against the trunk. It will grow and heal much more quickly if you're uh, less than a half inch out. But if you look carefully at it, you'll be able to determine where the branch collar is and you want to lay cut just outside that point. And I'm sure you know this, but for the benefit of 20,000 other people out there, when you're cutting big limbs, always make your first cut way out on the limb, three or four feet out to take the weight off. And then you go back and make your uh, final cut. Uh, you just you don't want to have it fall and strip a bunch of bark down. So uh, it's it's safer for you and it's better for the tree. Make at least one cut further out to take the weight off, and then go back and make your finish cut. All right. Appreciate all the information as always. And you get out and enjoy your day. Just be careful while you're up on that ladder. <laughs> I want to be able to talk to you next week as well, Mark. Thank you, sir. Okay. Thank Goodbye. You. Sure. Goodbye. Uh, Angie's next in line. Good morning, Angie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have, I have a dwarf Cavendish banana in a three-gallon pot that I'm bathing, and I brought it in the greenhouse now, and it's doing so good. It has, like, two other trees next to it now and then another one popping up, and I was wondering uh-huh. how you deal with that. You just let like, them grow. Just okay. let them grow. In the spring, when you move things back outside, if you if you ultimately plan to put it in the ground, you can leave them and let them make a clump, or you could separate them from the mother plant, so to speak, and pot them up individually. Remember that the uh, the principal part of a banana palm, whether it's Cavendish, whether it's uh, one of the uh, oh, the different burgundy varieties or whatever, that that stalk, that central stalk, if it goes for Oh, 14 to 16 months without freezing, it will actually make us a, a bunch of bananas. But that's it. Uh, it's kind of like a century plant that just blooms once and then it dies, but it puts up all the little plants around it. That central trunk of your Cavendish banana is only going to produce once and then it's going to die back. So you want to have at least some of those little ones coming up around it. Uh, to replace it. Now, it may go for a couple of years before that happens, but I, I, I like banana palms, all banana palms grown as a clump rather than as individual trees. They're more resilient to storm damage, and like I say, you just always kind of have a, a prettier mass of them. So at this point, just water them, fertilize them, and uh, enjoy them. 
When you get ready to deal with things next spring, call me and we'll talk about what looks best. Is the red in the leaf, that's part of the plant, right? My husband was telling Correct. me he thought, he thought, okay, so it's, nothing's wrong with it. It's just No, no, out. Cavendish right. has a broader leaf, a little bit more red in it. It's a little bit more compact grower, but, but that's all totally normal stuff. He's just used to the old-fashioned kind of ugly banana palms that uh, people have grown for 50 years. So <laughs> Cavendish is just one of the improved kind of special varieties, much more okay. colorful and much more attractive. When I got it, it wasn't in good shape, and a lot of the outer leaves died, and I kind of peeled them back. Was that a bad thing to do? Doesn't matter. It's kind of like, okay. you know, cutting your hair or trimming your fingernails. You're taking okay. off dead tissue, so as uh, long as you were careful doing it, I'm sure you were, you didn't cause any damage yeah. to it, and it probably looks a whole lot nicer because you did it that. Looks, that looks really good. Um, <laughs> um, brag, brag, movie. brag. <laughs> yeah, sorry, guys. Not, not really. I'm just proud of it, you know? What can I say? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my green bean patch is almost done and I was wondering that the beneficial nitrogen that the the beans bring to the soil, do I mm-hmm. just blow down that patch or do can I pull out the the spent plants? Well, you you're best to just cut it off at ground level. It's not so much that you're pulling the nitrogen out, but the bacteria which have that unique quality that is that they are able to take nitrogen from the air and turn it into uh, a, a fertilizer form of nitrogen. Uh, the, those bacteria, you don't want to be ripping them out of the ground. You want those bacteria to still be in the soil for next year's patch of you know green beans or you know this spring's patch of snow peas or whatever else you plant. That's why mm-hmm. you don't need to inoculate legume seed uh, if you're planting them in the same area you've had them before. You want to be sure you've left plenty of that behind. So, no, just, just clip them off at ground level, break them off at ground level, whatever, but don't don't worry about trying to pull them out of the ground or anything. Great. And one last real quick. I got a kefir pear yesterday, and I want to know if I should plant it in the spring or now. A piece of prickly pear? A kefir pear tree. Oh, a kefir, kefir pear. I'd go ahead and plant it. Kefir are, or all pear trees are probably our most cold-hardy, long-lived, easy-growing trees. Just, uh, as always, dig a square hole and um, uh, be sure the hole drains well. But no, a pear, whether it's kefir or orient or whatever else, um, I'd, I'd be putting it in the ground this afternoon if it were me. Do I need to yeah, unwrap the trunk, you think, and stake it? or? I wouldn't stake it. Uh, what do they have wrapped around the trunk? Is it like a paperish kind of wrap, Nothing or what kind right of? Now. Put it's it? not wrapped. Yeah, oh, it's not you don't. Wrapped. No, you don't need to do a thing. If it looks like we're going to get to five degrees, then we might want to put some insulate or something around it for a little, oh. just a little protection. But pears, uh, pears can live a hundred years. They are the hardiest of all of our fruit trees, and uh, kefir's a very good choice. Great, I'm excited. Yeah, I like to make apple crisp with pears like that <laughs> it's great things now now realize that pears really need cross-pollination so okay. unless you have a neighbor with a pear tree uh, you're going to need to get a second pear tree and you might want to look at orient or monterey or suckle or moon glow uh, there are a lot of different good pears but you will always get better pear production uh, if your if your kefir has a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, however you want to look at okay, it. Okay, great. Yeah, I want to find the Orient, but I'm having a little problem finding those. Check check Fanic here in San Antonio. Okay. Yeah, that's where I got the kefir, but uh, we will check again. Very right, good. Thank you so much.
Thanks for your My time. Pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. We look forward to it, Angie. Goodbye. All right, Greg, hang on just a second. Need to get a break in here. I get to talk about the Cedar Eater of Texas. Talking about the Cedar Eater just last night with uh, friends that have property in the Hill Country. The Cedar Eater takes care of that second growth cedar, which just chokes our land. You know, over the past couple of weeks, most of us up there got half an inch of rain, maybe a couple of different rains for about half an inch. But if your land is covered up with cedar, absolutely zero of that moisture got to the ground underneath. The cedar, what we call cedars, actually ash juniper, just is the scourge of the hill country, and most people who know try to get rid of it. Unfortunately, a lot of them want to slash and burn, bulldoze and burn, whatever. Big mistake. If you want to get rid of your cedar issues, you call the cedar eater because they have a machine that comes in, cuts off the cedar at ground level, which kills it, and grinds it into a nice mulch. No burning, no bulldozing, no big disruption of the land. Sure, it's a heavy machine, and it's going to turn over a rock or two, but it's not like getting in there with a skid steer or a bulldozer or something like that. Much, much better for your land and just as effective at getting rid of the cedar. The Cedar Eater's been doing this for lots of years. They have both a North Texas and a South Texas office. You access them both through the same phone number, which I'll give you in just a second. But they also have lots of other services, taking down big trees that may have died from weather or oak wilt, taking down, uh, you'll have you down in South Texas and need to clear those senderas. Man, they can do miles in a single day. And uh, it's just a wonderful company offering a wonderful service. If you want to learn more, just give them a call. 210-745-2743. That's 210-745-2743 for the Cedar Eater of Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Back to gardening. It's going to be Greg and then Gordon and Michelle. Greg's first. Good morning, Greg. I, uh, I have a question about uh, core aeration. Okay. Uh, when's the best time to do it? And afterwards, I know we put a top dressing on it. Is there a place somewhere around the New Brussels area that you would recommend we go? Well, I would uh, I would use just straight compost. Uh, rather than top dressing, and it is good to do that. Uh, you can actually do it before or after you, uh, you know, you use your core aerifier because what you're wanting is to just have the compost fill in that little hole that uh, that the aerifier pulls out. You can literally do it any time of year. If your soil is badly compacted, it may be a good thing to do. I have to tell you, in most cases. I find just putting that layer of compost on does just as much good as running a core aerifier through it because the compost with the humic acids and everything that's in there will actually soften that soil just about as well as core aerification. But if you feel like your soil is badly compacted, and as long as you take care not to mess up your sprinkler system, I've just I've just seen too many holes punched in sprinkler heads and sprinkler lines with a core aerifier. But uh, I I'm just not going to tell you that every yard needs a core aerifier. There are cases where it's a good thing where the soil is badly compacted, but uh, I, I would say at least two thirds of the time that I see people using core aerifier, they could have accomplished the same thing just putting on a half-inch layer of compost and watering. Okay, because I live in a, a kind of a newly constructed neighborhood, and uh-huh. uh, the soil, it's pretty hard clay. Yeah. So I didn't, well, I didn't know if aerating it would make it better. Or... 
it it will make it better if it's worth the effort and expense. Um, I mean, you know, you sound like you're a capable person, and if it's something you can go out and do yourself, uh, you're not going to hurt anything by doing it. But if it's something that you're thinking of paying somebody a large sum of money, uh, I would rather see him just, no, you know, no, put I'm gonna a. Go, <laughs> I'm going to go rent one or something. <laughs> well, it it's it's kind of like driving a bobcat. It takes a little while to to really get the hang of it. Once you do, it's uh, it can be a good thing. But um, I, I just I, I I would take a close look at your soil, see how badly compacted it actually is, and it's not going to hurt anything, but. Uh, if you're, you know, having to take extra vacation or taking time away from something else, I'm not going to tell you that it's mandatory to do. Okay. And then, um, as far as doing the pre-emergent and the fertilizer, how long should I wait afterwards or? Well, doing the fertilizer, I'd use a good organic product and I'd probably do the fertilizer before I did the aerification. I mean, there's no reason to wait. Pre-emergence in my experience, are largely a waste of time. And the reason is that uh, most of the weeds that, that are really problematic, things like sticker burrs and all, they, they can sprout and grow any time from about the middle of March all the way up till the middle of September. And pre-emergence, whether you're using the natural one, corn gluten meal, or whether you're buying one of the blessed chemical ones, they don't last all that long. You're going to end up, if to, if you really want to be effective with a pre-emergence, you may have to put it down five times to really get it working. It does, pre-emergence do not kill seed. That's one of the big misconceptions. Pre-emergence allow the seed to sprout, but then they inhibit the formation of roots, and if the weather's right, then that little seedling just shrivels and dies because it doesn't have any roots to support itself. But... Um, most of the things that are going to be sprouting at this time of year are going to be things like dandelions and henbit and uh, that sort of winter weed. And all you really need to do to control those is let them sprout and start up. By that time, probably your basic grass is going to have browned out from frost. And then you can go in and just use your mix of orange oil and vinegar. Just spray the whole yard. It will not hurt your your basic grass which is turned brown but it will very effectively kill the emerging green weeds with one spraying two at the very most and it's just a lot easier a lot less expensive and uh, just as effective pre-emergence just and the other the other negative to pre-emergence is that uh, when you understand how they work you realize that even though it i'm not going to say that it's likely but in this area we sometimes will get one of these weather systems that just sort of set in and it rains a little bit every day for two weeks uh in that situation your pre-emergence is not going to work at all because your little seedling doesn't doesn't need the moisture it's not having to worry about putting down a root system and uh it will just hang in there until the rain ends and then the pre-emergence probably all gone and then it's going to sprout and grow anyway so Pre-emergence, in my experience, are pretty highly overrated and not that effective. Um, so I, I, I doubt a new lawn. I doubt that you're going to have much of any kind of weed growing beyond the usual dandelions and henbit. And uh, you can control that with one simple spraying of orange oil and vinegar after frost has ground out your basic grass. It's a lot easier and a lot less expensive and a lot less trouble. Okay, so you just really recommend just uh, putting the uh, compost down on the yard? 
Uh, that that and a good fertilizer. And it doesn't make any difference in an ideal world. Put your fertilizer down first, put your compost on top of it. But if that doesn't work, you put the fertilizer on top of the compost. Just get a good organic product. It can be Growing Green by Medina. It can be Texas Tea by yeah, Nature's Creation. Yeah, it's good stuff. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. Congratulations on your new home. Call anytime we can help. If you're ever over our way, um, stop by. We've got two or three handouts we can give you about maintaining that new uh, landscape. I'm happy to give you a free copy of and uh, answer a lot of your questions for you. Okay, I appreciate it. My pleasure, Greg. Thank you for the call this morning. Uh, next in line is Gordon. Good morning, Gordon. Good morning. How are you all doing this morning? Ah, uh, it's it's me and the puppy dog and a few people here unpacking boxes of plants, and we're all just ideal. It's a, it's it's warm enough to be comfortable, but cool enough to be comfortable. So it's uh, it's other than being overcast, and that's probably going to burn off. It's just a great day to be to be alive and be out there. Yeah, I'm coming back from the coast right now, and it feels like it's midsummer down here. It's humid, and uh, just calm as can be. That that cool front didn't uh, make much of a dent down here. Well, that's good for that's good for fishing. So I hope you were down there having some fun. Something like that. Something like that. So, <laughs> yes, sir. Hey, I've got so I've got a, I've got actually two questions. So I I mean, like a lot of people, you probably answered this a um, hundred times over the last two months, and I've missed some of these calls. Um, so my house in San Antonio, um, I've got St. Augustine in the summer. Like a lot of people, my backyard is St. Augustine. My front St. Augustine. But my backyard, um, I had it dethatched about a month and a half ago. Um, mm-hmm. The grass was looking pretty bad, you know, despite watering and trying to keep it alive without a $300 water bill when I could. Um, but just dethatching, almost all the grass came up. My, my entire backyard is literally almost bare with the exception of a few patches of St. Augustine. And I've yeah. got, apparently I've got some, some Bermuda mixed in because mm-hmm. Bermuda's held on. Yeah. Well, don't don't ever dethatch St. Augustine. That was a huge mistake because uh, dethatchers are are devastating to St. Augustine because the runners were up on the surface. Dethatching is okay for Bermuda and it's okay for Zoysia, but um, I wish we'd talked beforehand. I know nobody with any knowledge should have ever offered to dethatch your yard. Well, it sounds like I need to hire a different yard guy. Cause he's I most definitely him. would. I most definitely would. He doesn't know what he's doing. And like I say, it's it's great they do it up north. And, uh, you know, a, a grass that has underground runners like Bermuda or like Zoysia, uh, it it can make it look a lot nicer. But, boy, that's, uh, uh, that, that's real hard on your St. Augustine. Now, hopefully there's enough left for it to come back. And at this point, compost and fertilizer are going to be your best bets. But uh, we're just going to have to wait and see because dethatchers are uh, they're, they're just really hard on St. Augustine. Well, my backyard, like I said, I've got three-quarters of it is bare dirt now. And uh-huh. there, there's no there's no runners that I can find. So, you know, I'm, I'm to the point. It's about 75% sun. I've got some live oaks. I get some parts of the, of the lawn get shade during the day. But during uh-huh. the afternoon, especially in summer, I get a lot of sun. I'm actually, uh-huh. I was actually considering going back with Bermuda in the backyard. Not going to um, work. Not going to work. Bermuda needs needs full sun. Uh, if you want Bermuda, plan on having Bermuda in the sunnier areas, but then in the shadier areas, plant a ground cover like Asiatic jasmine. Uh, if you're wanting to put 
one grass that will grow in the whole yard. It's going to have to be one or the other varieties of St. Augustine because Bermuda is just going to be thin and nasty. So is Oysia. Just simply do not tolerate shade. They pretty much need sun all day long to really make a pretty yard. Like a golf course where they're so beautiful, you don't see a lot yep. of shade on the golf course, and that's why Bermuda looks so good. How do you feel about Floortown in a, in a situation like that? Floortam is um, it's a good grass. It is the most sun-tolerant and also the most sun-demanding Shane Augustine. So um, uh, it's not quite as cold-hardy as some of the other varieties, but it was developed as a coastal grass. And so it will tolerate more drought. It will tolerate more sun. But if you really have much in the way of shady areas where you want St. Augustine, i go with Del Mar or go with Palmetto. Uh, they are okay. more shade tolerant, and they'll grow in the sun as well. But in a sunny yard, uh, I think Floritam is an outstanding grass. Yeah, I've got one strip of my front yard um, next to my driveway that died completely, and I have had it replanted mm-hmm. twice since Snowmageddon, and it wouldn't take. And I don't yep. think I don't think the uh, I think the soil number one I use Medina pro- uh, product religiously, uh-huh. um, so I think it's probably I, I, probably the wrong grass. Well, and unfortunately, the the one negative of Floritam is that it is not as cold hardy as the other ones, but it's rare that we get a a winter like we had with Snowmageddon. Uh, But, uh, for instance, uh, Floritam, they just don't use it in Dallas because uh, they're just that much colder that it doesn't do well, where other varieties do extremely well. So your your Floritam problem out there was probably more weather-related than anything else, but... uh, is it going to do it again this year? I don't know. Farmer's Almanac says it may be really cold again. <laughs> My experience says rarely do we, you know, have severe winters that often. So um, I, I, it's just this is a time of year that it's that you can go out and buy sod. You can put it down if you want. There's nothing wrong with that. But with uh, well, I'm not seeing any any increase in availability of water or any decrease in price of water. So I'm going to tell you to think hard about maybe just planting some ryegrass or something like that to have a green yard through the winter. And hopefully by March, April, when the weather warms up, and hopefully we will have some more rain by then, that may be a much better time to do any resodding that you want to do. I just, again, we could get to the point, and uh, I serve on a groundwater district. I can tell you more than you want to know about uh, the problems we're having with water availability right now. And if we don't get rain, it's possible we're going to get in a situation where they're going to tell people, sorry, you can't water your yards at all. And I don't want to see you spend a whole bunch of money on grass that you can't keep alive legally. So um, just just be cautious in in what you're doing out there. And like I say, for my money, I'm not replanting sod until next spring. And if I want to avoid the mud and have something that looks nice, I'm going to put down one of the perennial rise, which really isn't perennial in this area. But I think it's a better thing to do with uh, the uncertainties we have right now with temperature and, and moisture. Okay. And well, that makes sense. So now let me ask you another question. It was probably related to snowmageddon. I've got box shrubs in my front yard. Um, mm-hmm. And I've got about five of them, and uh, I didn't cover them during Snowmageddon. Um, uh-huh. And I look at my neighbor's shrubs, and they're all nice and healthy and green, and, and literally every one of my shrubs up front, half of it, it, it looks like they're almost dead, with the exception of about half of it has green foliage on it, and the rest of it's uh-huh. dead. I, I'm just 
trying to to keep these things alive and and sure. rejuvenate them to get them back. Will they? Will, will those come back? Tell me what what kind of shrubs they are. They're just like a box shrub, just like the ones you see in the landscapes where you can shape them. I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what the name of it is. Okay, well the the question's hard to answer. If it is a boxwood, uh, chances are it will come back out, assuming it's in a very sunny location. Um, and they're, they're hardy. Mine, God, mine are a hundred years old and they, they didn't hardly lose a leaf and we were colder in Bernie than you are here. Others, uh, dwarf pittosporum and some of the others, uh, may be better replaced rather than trying to nurse them back to health. I would take a small branch off of one of these by, uh, a good nursery. Somebody can tell you what it is. And if you can give me a name of what you're actually looking at there, I can give you a lot better uh, advice as to what to do with it. I, I would very, very definitely fertilize. I would water, probably a little mulch around it, but I can't be real specific until we know. <laughs> it's it's yeah. kind of like, and I, I'm teasing you, but I had a guy call me one day and say, I want one of those big green plants. Uh, you know, they're big and green and leafy. <laughs> I said, well, you're going to have yeah. to tell me a lot yeah. more than that. And he said, well, they have them in all the new car showrooms. And so eventually we figured out what it was. But at this point, I'm just guessing, probably is a boxwood, and probably it's going to recover given time and fertilizer and moisture. But uh, before we get too specific, let's be sure what the patient is. Okay makes perfect sense i'll snap some pieces off today and maybe run over to rainbow gardens let them take a look at it yeah yeah talk to uh they they should know the shrubs pretty well they're you on a thousand oaks or bandera road thousand oaks yeah they, there's some good people out there well let me know what you find out gordon and i'll look forward to visiting with you again appreciate it you guys my pleasure you too thank you all right let's talk for a moment and by the way uh michelle you're up next but uh one of the things that I'm just still amazed by the technology in, and that's this little white device called a freeze miser. Talking to people that have been down at the coast, maybe you've got a fishing shack down at the coast, maybe you've got a, a hunting place up in the hill country, and you always worry when the weather gets colder. My hydrant's going to freeze, uh, and I hear people running up in the middle of the night when they just got a bad forecast. The freeze miser takes the worry out of whether your faucets are going to freeze or not. It is a most remarkable device. No batteries, no wires, nothing to go bad. It's a little device with some remarkable chemistry inside. You screw it onto the hydrant and turn the water on nothing happens no water comes out but this freeze miser can tell what the temperature of the water is not air temperature but the temperature of the water and if the temperature of the water in the hydrant gets close to freezing 37 degrees fahrenheit is the actual number but if it gets down to where it's thinking about freezing the freeze miser automatically starts dripping the hydrant and then when it warms up it stops dripping it i put mine on once in the fall and i take them off the next spring this is the third year that I will have been using them, and let me tell you, they work like a charm. These things are used all the way up in Minnesota and Wyoming, places where it gets a lot colder, so they work beautifully here. They just take the guesswork out of keeping your hydrants from freezing. You can put even put them on the end of a hose up to 50 feet long or so. Don't recommend that as much because, you know, you're keeping the water pressure on and you don't want your hose to start leaking. But for hydrants and uh, 
it's, it's just amazing how well they work. And if it's hydrants that you want to continue using to water with, well, you just put a Y connector on that hydrant, put your freeze miser on one side and turn it on, put your hose on the other side and just turn it on and off with that little, uh, that little valve that's on the top. Freeze misers work. If you want to see how they work and watch them in action, go to freezemiser.com. F-R-E-E-Z-E-M-I-S-E-R. You're not going to find them in the box stores, but you'll find them at good independent uh, hardware stores, nurseries, garden centers. All those places carry a wonderful product called the Freeze Miser. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Michelle and Kathy and Bambi. Michelle is first. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning. How are you? Off to a good start. Beautiful morning. Hope you are, too. Um, My question is very similar to the previous caller. Um, It's about my lawn and Uh landscaping. Um, I had foundation issues, which have been repaired, but they pulled out the shrubs, and um, my neighbor... Um, and we're trying to kind of coordinate, want, wanted to put in uh, Celebration Bermuda. Mm-hmm. And um, and she put in a patch on her lawn, and it, it, it did very well. But uh-huh. I'm trying to, um, but her lawn is um, sunny. My lawn is mostly shady. Yeah, Bermuda, okay. no Bermuda does in the shade, so... Um, it's it, it just I, I wouldn't recommend it. I'll put it that way. Okay, so I'm trying to decide whether just to do like a rock landscape, you know, type thing, or is there any uh, grass or sod that does well in um, shade? Yeah, there is a there are a couple of grasses that do very well. Both of them are varieties of St. Augustine. One of them is called Palmetto. The other is called Delmar, and uh, they are among, uh, they're wonderful grasses. Uh, unlike Bermuda, they'll never have chiggers in them. They have the longest green season, uh, much softer, nicer to walk on. The only real disadvantage is if you are forced to stop watering Bermuda, it turns brown and then normally comes yeah. back out when you water again. St. Augustine dies if you stop watering it, but it you know, even under the uh, stage two drought restrictions, uh, sounds like you have plenty of water to keep your St. Augustine looking good. But uh, I'm not a fan of rock because uh, even if you put something underneath it, it's going to get weeds in it. It's going to be a maintenance issue. It's not just a uh, it, it's not like paving your lawn. It's going to have its own set of issues. And uh, in a, you know, if you do a Zurich type of landscape, you can use some stones and things that look okay but uh if you don't want grass i'd be more looking at ground cover which uses less water uh less maintenance uh takes a little bit longer to establish but uh you know something like asian jasmine in the shade or benka minor uh even dwarf monkey grass or something like that depending on how big the area is you have lots of choices above and beyond the rock bed Okay. I was just thinking about, um, you know, not watering. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, again, that that sounds good, but if you have foundation issues, it's probably because you weren't watering. <laughs> watering, at least around the foundation, does more to protect yeah, well, your foundation and, yeah, and, and letting things get really dry. 
may reduce your water bill, but then you pay several thousand dollars to fix the damage it causes to the foundation. So, again, it's a personal right. choice, but um, you just have to don't let anybody hear what's right and wrong. I can give you the pros and cons of anything you want to talk about, but it's ultimately your decision, and you you do with what works with your lifestyle, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Okay. What about a low-maintenance shrubbery or plants? Remember that low-maintenance low uh, is once they're established. You're going to have to water them well uh, and regularly to get them established. But there are many, many evergreen things that we'll do in the shade. There are not as many different shrubs and things, but you've got evergreen holly ferns. You've got aspidistra. You've got perennials like Turk's Cap, uh, American Beautyberry. Um, again, if you're ever over our way, I'll give you a free list of lots of different things, whether shrubs, ground covers, or annual flowers that do well in the shade. But uh, there, there are lots of things that you can use and create an absolutely gorgeous yard that is going to be much lower maintenance. Now, they all have to be watered periodically, but uh, um, once things are properly established, uh, they do not require watering very often. Uh, um, so, again, decide, you know, what is going to work best with what you will enjoy and what you're able to afford and maintain. And I'd love to get, be able to advise you uh, with whatever you decide. But I, <laughs> we'll go with the very beginnings. Don't plant Bermuda grass in the shade because you're just throwing your money away with that. Okay. So if I put down grass, it would be St. Augustine, Palmetto, or Del Mar. Yes, ma'am. Um, this one. Okay. And... Um, and is this a good time of the year to put down fodder grass? <sighs> Hard to say. You tell me what the weather's going to do this winter, and I'll tell you whether it's a good time or a bad time. Most years, I would say it's a fine time. But there is the potential we could have a really cold winter. And if it were my yard, I'm probably going to wait and put it down in March. Uh, what I probably would think about doing is overseeding, which doesn't cost very much, with something like uh, one of the ryegrasses, like Top Flight or Greyhound, something like that. Overseed with that, and you'll have a nice green yard through the winter months that the weather's not going to bother. And then when we get into a little bit more spring-like weather, that's going to be the ideal time to put down your sod. Okay. Um, do you have any surefire way to get rid of squirrels from a suburban <laughs> now this sounds silly, but uh, there's a there is a remarkable device out there that's called the squirrelinator, and it is it's a trap. It's a live trap, um, and you can catch ten squirrels at a time in it. <laughs> a neighbor and good friend of mine just down the road up in Bernie, <laughs> he got one, and I think in the first three days he caught eight squirrels, and and I think it's. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. How how big is it? Oh, it's about maybe 18 inches, two feet in diameter. It just has oh. a different system that you know. It's not just catch one squirrel and that's it. They'll all they they're bunch of them can go in there at one time, and most people will go 10 miles down the road and release them. But I find it humorous that in uh, many times when you buy it. It comes with uh, basically a big plastic plan, pan that it can sit down in if you choose, 
And the instructions say, this pan can be used as a convenient euthanasia chamber if you prefer. So most people are going to take him and release him. But if you decide to eliminate him, you can do that as well. But uh, uh, they are uh, they are cause many, many problems in the landscape. And uh, I tend to trap and remove them elsewhere. I'm thinking about buying a squirrelinator this next spring because I've had two or three people that just uh, that just swear by them, and I've always used just the traps where I caught one at a time and hauled them off. But uh, the squirrelinator is <laughs> it's really worth looking into because it really does work. It sounds sounds silly, sounds like a a gimmick kind of thing, but it's not. It is a very effective way of trapping and removing them, and you have more squirrels than you realize. I came home one day and. I uh, had three of the black mountain rock squirrels hanging up on top of one of my tomato cages eating tomatoes. And I said, I'm going to eliminate you guys. And I figured, you know, a couple of days I'd catch the squirrels. Forty-three squirrels later, I finally caught the last one. So uh, you, you may very well want to do something about them. And the squirrelinator seems to be a pretty good way to do it. Well, I'm going to try that because the, I did <laughs> buy one of the um, the larger raccoon-type tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and and I probably carted off about twenty squirrels, and I thought, you know, I've had this pecan tree for about ten years, and not one year have I gotten a pecan for myself. Right, right. <laughs> and so, and, and so I, you know, I thought, well, you know, twenty squirrels, and it was quiet. The dogs weren't chasing them. You know, it was nice. <laughs> you know, and, but now they're back. Yeah, the pecans got the pecans started getting ripe, and here they come, just like out of the woodwork. Yep, and. Uh, Nothing else has really seemed to. Well, work. check it. Check out the squirrelinator. I will. Thank you for that. Uh, Thank you for the other advice, also. Always a pleasure, Michelle. Thank you for the call this okay. morning. Okay, bye. Uh, Kathy and Bambi going to be my next callers, but right now. I get to talk to you about Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. They've got a special deal going uh, through today, 20% off all their house plants. I guess they just probably have more than they want to have to protect this winter. But for whatever reason, you, you can save some money on house plants over at Fanix today. And while you're there, check out their wonderful selection of fruit trees and citrus. Check out their great selection of wintertime bedding plants, both flowers and fall vegetable plants. Pick up some good organic fertilizer, some good organic mulch. Uh, If you want to participate in the uh, CPS Energy's Green Tree Shade Rebate Program, it's going on for the next few months. And uh, plant it in the right place. CPS will give you $50 credit for every tree you plant, up to, I think, seven trees. Mannix is well-stocked on the trees that qualify for that program. Um, And they've, of course, got all the perennials at work with the SAWS Water Saver Rebate Program. When you have... 10 acres of nursery, you have room to carry a lot of different things. And Fanix has been sitting right there in the same spot on Home Green Road for 80-some-odd years now. Check them out online if you'd like it. Fanic, F-A-N-I-C-K, FanicNursery.com, or simply go see them. They're open seven days a week to serve you. And uh, it's uh, it's just a big nursery. Plan on spending some time to check out all the things they have to offer at Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and quickly back to the phone lines. It's Kathy's turn. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning, Bob. I've Good got morning. Some great news. Okay. Uh, you have helped me for a year or more on that uh, ponytail palm I had. Right. I don't know if you remember, you helped me to repot it, not really uh-huh. repot it, but up it, and uh, 
fertilize it with the right stuff, give it a trim, do all kind of stuff to it. Anyway, I needed to get rid of it because he got so big. It was eight uh-huh. foot tall. <laughs> uh, and I had a list. I called and called and called every person in the world I could think to. And finally, the last person I called, and I'd given up and been, oh, about three days. And I got a call. And Very was, good. Uh, the San Antonio Zoo. Very good. And they were out uh, within a few days and picked it up, and they were so happy. They've got a new display going in, and they wanted it so bad. When they saw it, they said, oh, my God, this thing is beautiful. (laughs) Well, I'm glad it worked out. I'm glad it went to a good home and took care of something that was surplus unique. And I wanted to tell you. If it wouldn't have been for you, it wouldn't have looked that way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're mighty kind to think of me, and uh, it's my great pleasure to help you, Kathy. And uh, I'm glad the zoo was able to help you out, and they're lucky. They got a six-foot palm. They got a plant worth a few hundred dollars. So, yeah, eight foot. Well, I realize if they gave you a receipt as a charitable contribution, you can probably take that off your income tax. I didn't. I don't care. I didn't want it. I just... I just wanted my baby to get a good home. <laughs> well, and that's a great thing. Listen, I sure appreciate you letting me know. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And we've got a couple of lines open. If you want to grab one of them, you just heard the number. 210-599-5555. Bambi and Matt are in front of you. So let's just go right straight back to their calls. And, uh, Bambi, it's your turn. Good morning. Hey, it's so good to talk to you. My I've pleasure. Listened for a long, I've listened for a long time. It's the first time I've been able to get through to call. Very um, good. I've got, two quest- I've got two questions. One is about artichokes and the other is about garlic. Okay. I've planted garlic for the last three years. I'm in Hempstead, Texas, just northwest of um, Houston. Right. And in my, in my raised beds, I've, I've planted garlic, and they're beautiful. They grow up, and they're just gorgeous. And when I pick them, they feel fairly solid. Um, not huge, but, you know, a, a decent size. And so uh-huh. I bring them in. Uh, we have a, a, a game room, and so I put cardboard down on the, on the pool table and lay them out underneath the ceiling fan and let them dry for a couple of weeks. Both years, they have just, like, almost disintegrated in the middle. It's like the middles are absolutely hollow. hollow. Out of, like, 40, I might get 10 that, that I'm able to use. Um, last, of course, this past year, I, some of them that didn't feel real solid, I used them right away just so I wouldn't lose them. But mm-hmm. what, what causes them to be hollow in the center? It can be varietal. Um, and you don't ever want to wash garlic. I don't know how you clean them, uh, but garlic, once you've harvested it, water will cause it to really, well, really shorten its storable life. All you use is a brush just to get the, you know, dirt off the edges, and uh, you can braid them. You can uh, store them just about any way you want. Where are you getting the cloves that you are planting? Just getting them from the grocery store or where? What, how, how are you sourcing your garlic? Yeah, the first year I did that, the first year I had some, that, and that was what made me plant them, is um, I went to use them for cooking, and they had started turning green on the tip, so mm-hmm. uh, the cloves did. So I thought, I'm just going to stick them in the ground and see what happens. 
Um, but last, so I thought maybe that was it. So last year I actually went to Buchanan's, which is a, a native. Um, yeah, I know Buchanan's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love Buchanan's. Um, anyway, I, I got I actually got two he- two um, big heads from uh, Buchanan's last year. Um, this year I've ordered them. I've ordered them online, so um, uh-huh. from my from uh, my gardener. But um, yeah, I just need some help. I, I didn't wash them. I, I you know I just just I, okay. I just put cardboard down and just laid them on the cardboard, dirty and everything, um, and was going to wait to knock the, even knock their dart off until after they you know had dried out, but. Right. They weren't worth work for keeping. Well, I I have to tell you, I've been very disappointed in the garlic that is available through the nurseries the past two years. And we have a nursery, and I have to say, I've not liked, and we all pretty much buy from the same suppliers, and I've had the worst garlic luck with garlic, both in growing and in storing that I've ever had. This year, I'm, I'm going to go online. I don't know where I will get them, but... Um, there are many, many different kinds of garlic uh, out there, and I think the soft neck varieties are going to, you'll find their soft neck and hard neck. The soft neck varieties are going to be among the best, but I would suggest that you look for what they call elephant garlic. It's not okay. quite as strong flavored but it's uh, it's absolutely delicious. I mean, you go to California, you, you'll find that they actually bake it and do many, many different things with it. But this, I and mine comes back year after year after year. It's a bigger clove, and I in thinking Hempstead, it would probably grow extremely well for you. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I've, I just got some in the mail today. Uh, the folks, uh, Mr. Howard Garrett, of course, a dirt doctor that you know of up in Dallas. Uh, right. If you if you join his very inexpensive uh, kind of private side of the website, uh, they call the Organic Club of America. Um, right. I, I think, well. uh, you know, he, he probably will send you a few cloves of his uh, elephant garlic, and uh, mine are going straight into my garden. But uh, I just, I got elephant garlic, and I think I probably got it at Whole Foods or somewhere like that the first time I've planted it, and I've never had to go out and, and buy more. It just keeps coming back from seed. I'll dig and, you know, separate a few of the, you know, just stick a few of the cloves back in the ground. Mm-hmm. But uh, try growing some elephant garlic and see if that doesn't do better for you. And, um, oh, golly, I'm trying to remember. Um, let me see if I can find a really good source. I think you find if you go online, uh, you'll find a bunch of different people offering garlic. If uh, if Baker Creek, uh, they're a seed company, Baker Creek Seeds, I would see if they are offering garlic cloves. Uh, uh, they're a real dependable company and tend to have real good varieties. And um, you might... You might check with Dixondale. Dixondale is the, uh, and you can find their number and all online. They're the biggest supplier of onion plants in this part of the country, and they may be offering garlic as well. But, um, uh, again, I don't know, and, and the supplier that supplies so much of it happens to be a company called BWI, and virtually all the nurseries buy from them. But I've just been really, really disappointed in the quality of their garlic the past two years. And my own has done some of what you're talking about, and I just had a huge number of cloves that just never sprouted and grew well. So look for some elephant garlic and, and try getting your cloves online. And... Uh, 
the other thing about garlics uh, that you know you you want them you want to grow them on the dry side, uh, and they they will definitely keep longer. They will store better. You don't ever want to get bone dry because they're susceptible to a thrips insect uh, if they stay too dry. But that's the other thing. And you of course are in an area that gets more moisture than we do. But if you're watering them too frequently, you're going to get beautiful plants that don't hold up real well after you harvest them. So that may be playing into it a little bit as well. Yeah, absolutely could be. Yeah, it's funny you, you mentioned um, Howard Garrett because I was listening to him last week and he was like, somebody sent me all this garlic. I was like, no, I want some of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, call so up call up to him or, or email Doug and tell him, uh, Doug's sort of Howard's business manager, and tell him, hey, I want some of that garlic I, I heard, Howard. And I, I know at one point he was sending a little bit out, and he may just not have as much this year, but at one point that was one of the benefits of membership in the Organic Club as he was – he was sending some samples of it out. but uh, and, and the other yeah. thing, because you are in a little bit wetter area, uh, you might try creating a little bit of a raised bed area to grow it. When I think about, I don't know how much time you spend in California, but we used to do some gift shows out there a little more often, and Gilroy is the garlic capital of the country. And they're in a relatively dry area, and uh, they're in soil that just drains beautifully. So it may have something to do with the area that you're trying to grow it. A little bit of a, a raised bed kind of area might be worth trying just in one small area or at least berming the area up uh, to try to improve your drainage and see if that makes any difference in the keeping quality of the garlic. Yeah, these, these were in a raised bed, but they were heavily mulched, and I may have been guilty of one. No, don't, don't, ever, don't ever mulch your garlic. Yeah. Totally unnecessary, okay. and that, that could contribute. I'm sure it did. Yeah, and I do keep them water up until the last, you know, I breed everything I can. And up until the last two weeks, you know, I didn't water them. But, um, but yeah, they're, they've probably got three inches of mulch on it. You know, that yeah. bed does. Uh, they're, so they're, peel that off. Yeah. Peel that off and Thank put you. it somewhere else. Your tomatoes will love it. Your garlic hates it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other question I had, I know you got other people waiting, but um, is uh, I just tried so unsuccessfully to grow um, artichokes. Uh-huh. And I know they'll grow here. I know for a fact they will. I went oh, yeah. to a garden center in Magnolia. Um, I went just like kind of breezed through one day, and they had a huge one that had like a gosh, it must have had a half a dozen, a beautiful large um, uh, artichokes on it. But mind, I just I the year before they um, they came back from the freeze, that was no problem. But mm-hmm. this summer, I couldn't keep them wet, and they actually had small heads on them this summer. But I could not keep them cool enough. I even put a twenty percent shade over them. I uh-huh. put, I mean, I watered them almost daily, and they just one by one. Just I had six. And beautiful plants. They're really pretty. And um, one by one, they just, I lost all of them. And that, again, had something to do with the summer. Uh, if you have mulch around those, I would pull the mulch away. That's one thing really? that I have found that, yeah, that artichokes really don't care that much for. And, of course, what yeah. you're eating is the flower bud. Uh, I find in my garden artichokes do well for about three years, and then they die no matter what I do. So I think you yeah. will have to replant periodically. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, you know, mulch is great for roses. It's good for tomato plants. But there are a few things that, that it just suppresses rather than helps. And uh, I'd, I'd pull the, march, the mulch away from your artichokes, and I think they're going to do much, much better for you. 
But uh, expect that they're going to, at least mine, live for about three years. I probably get half a dozen artichokes per plant. And uh, you, you will have to, they're what I would call a short-lived perennial. You will be sure. replacing them every three or four years, regardless of how good a care you take of them. No, I'd be happy if I could keep them for three years. I, <laughs> I know that I know that they'll do well in the heat because I've been South Texas where you know oh, yeah. in the valley yeah. they grow up by, like a crop. And oh yeah, they survived. I mean, I, I saw pictures down there where they it snowed on them and they they just kept growing, doing fine. Oh, yeah. And um and yeah, I just haven't had any luck with mine. And I've I tried starting them from seed. I've tried starting small plants. No. I've started the seed inside. I've started the seed in the ground. I just really have had no luck with them. Well, start start with plants. Uh, put your mulch around your roses and somewhere else, and let okay. them get moderately dry. They're a thistle, basically. They're a thistle. Right, right. And think about how thistles grow. They like it hot. They like it dry. They like it sunny. And uh, I think you're you're hurting them with kindness. Um, and, and there's some things, see, you're probably a rose grower and everything else, and mulching is one of the secrets to growing roses and azaleas and things like that well, but it's just there's some things in the vegetable garden that it uh, it, it is a negative instead of a positive, and uh, I think uh, garlic and artichokes are two of the ones that I, I would definitely not have the mulches around. Well, that may be, because these are both in, I've, I've got a regular garden, but I also have a handful of red, raised beds, and both of those things are were in the raised beds that are mulched really heavily. So, um, yeah, I just put a thick layer of compost and then a compost on top of it, I mean, uh, mulch on top of the compost. So yeah. I'll pull all that stuff off and just let them try to struggle. Yeah, <laughs> I they... A, I know it's a thistle, but, and that's why I was so surprised that they burned up so badly this summer. Well, and and keep in mind that thistles seem to thrive best in the lousiest soils out there. So I think mm. you're just taking too good care of them, as hard as that is to yeah. say. But uh, um, I try try abusing them a bit, and I think they'll respond much better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm working too hard. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate your help with everything always. Well. Um, I have to tell you that my family gives me a hard time because uh, even at my birthday, my son <laughs> sent me a, a card that said, uh, South Texas Gardener says happy birthday because I always say, uh, well, South Texas Gardener says, well, South Texas Gardener says, like you don't have a name, right? And, um, and so, yeah, so on my birthday, they did. They sent me a card that said, South Texas Gardener says happy birthday. <laughs> well, that, that's a, I appreciate that, and um, I hope it was a happy birthday. And uh, you keep me posted on how your garlic and artichokes do in the future. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, let's get a break out of the way here, and Matt will be up next. But right now, I get to talk to you about Dr. Mark Williamson and uh, – Again, it's just fun when you know somebody that is just the best of the best. And that's the way I feel about Dr. Mark Williamson. If you're looking for a dentist who is a dentist and so much more, people coming out of dental school these days, they're as bad as uh, Dr. Kirby talks about the ones coming out of vet school. They just teach them, oh, well, if it's anything more than the cleaning or filling or whatever, just send them off to a specialist. Well, Dr. Williamson's that specialist, but guess what? He does it all right there in his office. He's not going to farm you out to somebody else where it's going to cost more and take more of your time. There are very few dental problems that Dr. Williamson can't solve right there in the office. And it is such a wonderful, friendly environment. You just, you can't, I don't think I've ever been in a dental office uh, 
that even compares to Dr. Williamson's office as far as the personal caring and the attention they give to their patients. He's certainly not focused on the next person in line. He's focused on you. He wants to know you. He wants to know your family. He wants to keep your oral health to where you're going to be healthier overall for years and years to come. It's just, I don't know, it's just a whole different experience. And I hope if you're looking for a good dentist, if you're looking for a new dentist, if you're new to the area, I hope you check them out. Their practice is out uh, northwest part of San Antonio, just outside uh, Loop 410. Uh, they're, oh, it's, it's actually on Cherry Ridge. And uh, uh, just a wonderful staff as well. 341-2569 is the number to call. 210-341-2569 for the absolute best in dental care. Check them out. Dr. Williamson and Associates. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. It's going to be Matt and Robin and E.T. Let's go straight back to the phone lines. And it is Matt's turn. Good morning, Matt. Uh, good morning, Mr. Webster, and thank you for taking my phone call. My pleasure. I, I have a concern about my country. Uh-huh. Uh, for the past five years or so, I haven't had any pecans from my from my tree. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's it's it's, it's still alive. It sheds its leaves. It's growing, but absolutely no pecans whatsoever. And I was wondering if you had any words of wisdom. Well, let's think about this for a minute. Do you do you see, you know, the way a pecan produces nuts, it has kind of like a husk around it. These little husks open up and the pecans fall out. And this little thing just is kind of star-shaped. You see the, the rough husks that are left behind. Do you see anywhere that these may have formed? Is it possible that it has produced pecans, but... You know, something has gotten to them before you have, or you just think the pecan has not, or the tree has not produced any pecans to begin with? It strongly appears that the tree is not producing pecans at all. And it concerned oh. me because before, one year I would get a good, a good crop, and then I wouldn't uh-huh. get anything the following year. But for the past five years, I said, well, I says, you know, this is going on too long. It's always, I mean, here we are mid, uh, early November, and no pecans again. Are there any other pecans that you know of? Do you have any other trees in your yard, or are there any other pecans around your neighborhood? Uh, yes, sir. There are several pecan trees that I see around my neighborhood, uh, but that's the only tree that I have here in my in my front yard that okay. a, that's a pecan. Okay. Well, pecans are wind-pollinated, and the the pollen has to blow from one tree to another tree, and... Okay. Uh, sometimes it's just a matter, I mean, if it doesn't get pollinated, you're not going to get any pecan productions. It's unusual that you would have absolutely no pecans at all, but it may be that for whatever reason, um, and, and again, I, I would have expected that you would get some, but it may be that there's just not another tree. Five years ago, might have been a tree was there and it got taken down by a storm or whatever else. But um, the best things you can do to encourage that pecan, of course, are fertilize it both spring and fall. And um, the uh, the fall fertilizing is what's going to help it. it, it they tend to bloom as it were, it's not something that looks like a flower, but they, they tend to form their reproductive structures about in March or April. And um, 
Oh, I, I don't want to bore you with the technicalities. Some of them shed the pollen first. Some of them form the little nutlets first, called protogenous and protandrous. But about uh, if the tree is healthy and growing, lack of pollination is one of the few things that would keep it from just not having a single pecan on there. Uh, spring and fall fertilizing, we can't do a lot. You know, we just can't give them enough water. And the kind of drought we've had this year, uh, my pecan trees have a tenth as many pecans or a hundredth as many as they usually do. But if you're just getting absolutely zero, um, I, I hate to tell you to, you know, go to the time and expense of planting another tree, but it may be uh, that there's just not another tree in an area where the pollen gets transferred from one to the other. And that's about the only thing I can tell you that would cause you for several years in a row just to get no no pecan production whatsoever. The drought, the superheat has, has hurt. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Across the street, Caddy Corner, there is a very large pecan tree, uh, maybe about maybe 20, 40, well, about 20, 25 yards from where I live. Well, you know, okay. I mean, there is one. There is one there that I see. It's a very large tree. Does that tree produce large. pecans? I don't know, sir. I, Not to my knowledge. I really don't know. Okay. Um, I uh, Again, there's just, if the tree has produced nuts in the past, then I see no reason why at least uh, every, some years. Now, like I say, the drought this year may have had a lot to do with why there were no nuts. Uh, and I've got pecan trees that are a couple hundred years old on my property that just have no nuts. But let's talk while the when the leaves first start to come out in the spring. Call me in the spring, and I'm going to get you to clip an end off a branch, and we're going to, over the phone, we're going to take a look at the little structures that it forms where it would be getting ready to make pecans and see if we can come up with anything else in the meantime be sure you fertilize it this fall about a pound of fertilizer per inch of trunk diameter if that trunk's 12 inches in diameter put about 10 to 15 pounds of fertilizer kind of out a little bit around the drip line and um and, and let's take a look at it in the spring and see if we can see what's holding it back do you have uh, one final question, a quick question. Any kind of fertilizer do you recommend? Uh, I like the organic products like Medina's Growing Green, Maestro Grows Texas Tea, Nature's Creations. Uh, they call it premium lawn food. Those are all good fertilizers that have a little extra zinc in them, which really seems to help the pecan trees. Uh, I see. Okay, sir. Okay. Well, thank you, sir, for being very informative, and thank you for your time and for your Well, I hope we can get it figured out, Matt, because there's nothing much better than good fresh pecans. So we'll Amen. work at it. We'll work at it for you. Thank you, thank sir. You. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. All right. My next two callers are going to be Robin and E.T., and uh, let's get a break in here quickly so I don't get behind. Looks like I get to talk about the Tank Depot and once again, I love talking about the Tank Depot. I bought tanks from them and know so many people who have. And everybody comes away happy because they have quality, have an amazing selection. Now, you can't go see them today. They're open Monday through Friday. But uh, right here in San Antonio, they have a, a big yard over uh, just real near the intersection of Southeast Loop 410 and Rigsby Avenue. It's actually just beyond Rigsby on the left-hand side. Uh, and uh, you'd just be amazed at the selection. But today you can go to their website, which is tank-depot.com. 
Take a look at all the tanks they offer. The thing that sets them apart is that they have better quality tanks. They have tanks with thicker walls, so you don't get the light passing through creating algae if you're collecting rainwater and things like that. Plus, they give you service. They can deliver those tanks and uh, even have a lot of things you'll need if you're getting into rainwater catchment. But all kinds of tanks, whether it's a transfer tank for the back of your pickup, an open-top bait tank, chemical storage tank, a septic tank. Yes, they have uh, big septic tanks as well. Much lighter weight, much easier to install. And, of course, uh, ever-present rainwater water sizes all the way from five gallons up to five thousand gallons they have locations here in san antonio the one i just mentioned rigsby at southeast loop 410 also have a location up in dripping springs when in buta as well never know when you might need a tank but when that time comes don't be picking up those things out on the street by the box stores get a quality tank from a quality company tank depot South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. Back to uh, <laughs> back to gardening. It's going to be Robin and E.T. and Cheryl. Robin is first in line. Good morning, Robin. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I've got three questions for you, I think, here. Okay. I'm looking at my sago palm, and it survived the two freezes good and i didn't cut off uh, the part of the fronds that were tan on the ends uh-huh and now it it still has those fronds and it still has the tan endings and it's kind of scattered throughout the whole tree and it's mm-hmm. you know it's not very attractive <laughs> so can i just go ahead and cut off those fronds that have the the now? As long as you, you have know. plenty of yeah, as long as you have plenty of good green fronds that'll be left behind, so that your sago is able to collect the sun's energy. But no, it wouldn't hurt anything at all to go through, and you can take out the whole frond, or you can just take out the the portion toward the tip of it that has the brown. But uh, your palm should have put on at least whole one whole new set of fronds so shouldn't hurt it at all to go ahead and take them out just put on your gloves because they got some pretty sharp little spikes put on your gloves and eyewear protection or or eye protection and uh (laughs) go for it go in and trim it out it'll look a whole lot nicer and won't bother the sago at all okay thank you and next question is about my poor lemon trees i'm just so sad about them um the the leaves are crinkly and are starting to get yellow spots in them. Okay. I've had no lemons. Well, the birds try to ruin them. Even though I have a net over them, a mm-hmm. cage and a net, the birds can get, well, they push the net to the lemon, you know, and then they <laughs> guard the lemon, I'll tell you. Go ahead. Yeah, something's eating them also because I have these stems going way up and no leaves are on them. So mm-hmm. something's eating them. I can't figure out what that is. Uh, and then I, th- I think I heard you say the other day if you cut them into a bush, they would uh, produce better. Did you well, they that? produce more as a bush. Uh, is your tree in, the, in a pot or is it in the ground? I have one in the pot and one in the ground. And the one in the ground looks better than the one in the pot yeah. i think you're i think you're letting I, I think you're getting a letting them get a little too dry between waterings 
Um, it's the yellowing in the leaves is almost always a sign that they're drying out too much between waterings. Now the leaves getting eaten, it's probably a caterpillar. Um, you can control those. There's a non-poisonous spray called Spinosad soap, and uh, uh, it's the only only downside is it's an absolutely beautiful butterfly that lays that egg, and the caterpillar is weird looking. It looks kind of like bird droppings is what it looks like but uh um if something's eating the leaves off it's almost certainly a caterpillar and uh spraying with insect with uh, uh spinosad soap would certainly take care of that and um i i think i would fertilize a little more often i'd use a liquid like has to grow or something like that and i would be watering it whenever the soil's dry on the surface and when you water it water it very 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 thoroughly because most of the roots are all the way down in the very bottom of the pot but i think it's just a little hungry a little thirsty and uh take care of the caterpillars the appearance is not going to change very much and most people didn't get a lot of lemons this year because of the late freezes and the cold winter we had last year following the terribly cold winter we had the year before so you're you're kind of suffering a little bit from what happened to us last February and early March. But uh, I'd fertilize, I'd water it a little bit more, and um, I don't think I'd go and really do too much reshaping at this point. It's, I wouldn't necessarily take a tree and try to turn it back into a bush, but if you have a bushy one in the future, just let it grow as a bush rather than trying to make a tree out of it. But uh, I think more frequent watering, a little bit more fertilizing, and there is a heavier-duty bird netting that's called Bird X that, uh, let's see how many lemons you get set next uh, February, January, February, while it's in bloom. And if it looks like you're going to have a good crop of lemons, I'll tell you about a different kind of protection you can put over to keep the birds away. Okay. And I've, had, I've raised a giant swallowtail butterfly uh-huh. yeah. off of the larva because you you alerted me to that a couple of years ago and I remembered that <laughs> right year. but you know I don't know how the butterflies are getting in there and I I'm looking at my lemon trees all the time and I have a satsuma two satsumas that I look at uh-huh. and I've had the larva on the satsuma and uh but something's getting it something's eating the larva because I haven't had a chrysalis I haven't had a uh, a, a caterpillar, you know, that I can yep. put in my cage and raise. Well, that's probably wasps. Um, the different yeah, paper wasps, yeah. especially the red wasp, uh, really are very, very predatory toward the caterpillars. And um, they're, you know, you can put a little netting sometimes uh, over over the area. We, we do the same thing with the ones that get on fennel and, and things like that. But uh, that that red wasp, that's one wasp I don't like. And if you find that nest, I don't mind eliminating them. The yellow jackets, the other paper wasps, I tend to leave alone. But um, uh, that's that's what is usually going after the caterpillars. And keep in mind that if they've got one leaf outside of the netting or whatever else, the cat- the butterfly can lay its eggs on that leaf. And then they'll hatch into the caterpillar, and the caterpillar can crawl anywhere it wants to go. So uh, you could, probably you'll get some more of the giant swallowtails, but I'm pretty sure that's what's that's what's been getting after the leaves on your tree. Okay, and is that wasp, that red wasp, a large one? Is it large? Um, 
It's bigger than a yellow jacket, but it's not like these wasps that kill the, the uh, cicadas and things like that. It's it's a fair size, but it's solid red, and they are very, very aggressive. So that's that's the one wasp I just don't allow in my garden. Okay. Yeah, well, I've seen some different-looking wasps this year, and mm-hmm. I've had very few Gulf fritillary caterpillars yep. uh, even get big. And it's, yep. it's and last year I had so many gulf fritillaries. I had chrysalises all over oh, yeah. my eaves yeah. of my house. And this yeah. year I'm seeing nothing, and it's yeah. very sad. We, yes, and, but that's partly because the cold weather was so hard on the passion vines and the places where the fritillaries like to lay their eggs. But hopefully uh-huh. we're going to get a little milder winter and a little bit better year for uh for citrus production and for uh, butterflies this next year. But right now, I think I'd just I'd increase your fertilizing. I'd uh, uh, increase your watering and everything else that should take care of itself. If you can eliminate any red wasps, you see, that will probably protect your caterpillars mm-hmm. a little better. Mm-hmm. And I go off for, after them with the spray. Yeah. The wasp spray, yeah. I okay. you. Do do what works best for you. Get the mildest product you can, but uh, I just use basically orange oil and water, and it knocks them down, and then uh, the sole of my shoe takes care of it from there. <laughs> so oh, so you, you mix a spray bottle with orange oil? Uh, yeah, I, I, put a, I put a couple ounces of orange oil in a quart of water, and uh, uh-huh. that that doesn't kill them on the spot, but it, it knocks uh-huh. them down, and uh, like I say, the... Uh, uh, the sole of my shoe then takes care of it from that point on. But uh, oh. let me know how it works, Robin. I want to hear yeah, that your lemon news. trees are getting better. Great news. Me too. Okay, thank you so much, Bob. Love your You're show. St- well, thank you so much. All right, uh, let's see here. E.T. and Cheryl, let me get a break out of the way here, and then we'll be back and do a little bit more gardening, and uh, we'll be right back with more gardening here on KTSA. I bet you're going fishing all the time. My baby's going fishing too. You bet your life, your sweet wife's going to catch more fish than you would ever do. Many fish bite if you got good bait. Here's a little tale I would like to relate. Many fish bite if you got good bait. I'm going fishing, yes, I'm going fishing. My baby's going fishing too. Well, I'm going fishing, yes, I'm going fishing. My baby's going fishing too. I'll play that thing. Oh, that'll make you tap your toes and smile. <laughs> Mr. Oh, Don yeah. Cooper Stevens, uh, the days that he does my engineering, we, we get a fishing song or at least a good outdoor song for the last commercial break of the show. And, Don, that's that's another winner. Let's, let's keep that one. I still think one of these days you need to do Don's fishing song as a uh, limited-release CD. I know a lot of people would love to have a copy of something like that. Anyway, I'm Bob Webster. We've been talking gardening for uh, almost three hours, and we've got a few more minutes left. We'll talk to E.T. and then to Cheryl and see if we have more time than that. Uh, E.T., you're up first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Oh, I'm still kicking. Good. I question about question about leaves. It doesn't really pertain down here, but I was watching an information program up in okay. Northern Con- Northern states where uh-huh. you get blue clues of leaves on the ground, right? Right. And if you don't like them or if you do not mulch them, once it snows, 
they kind of mess up the biology of the soil. Well, I again, I I live not all the way up north, but I've lived in areas that got a little bit more snow. And all I can say is that's how Mother Nature has been building the soil in those areas for you know many millions of years. So it must be not messing it up too badly. But um, old Malcolm Beck is the one that told me. He said, "Now stop and think about it." He said those tree roots grow way down deep into the ground, and they bring up all the minerals and all the things that uh, uh, your grass and all can't get to. He said they put those minerals up in the leaves, then the leaves fall back down on the surface of the soil, and that's the way that nature keeps what he called remineralizing the upper layer of soil. So uh, I'm a big fan of leaving the leaves. I do like chopping them up with a lawnmower or something. I just think that that... uh, um, and we don't usually get snow on top of them, but it keeps them from blowing away as much. It exposes more they surface say, area. They say to act like a weed block, you know, for a weed fabric. That was the reason why. Well, and and if you have large-leaved trees like some of the maples and maybe even some of the big oaks, I guess I guess it could form such a dense mat. But uh, I've never really seen that happen here. And again. When you look at the majority of our trees being things like cedar elms and live oaks and trees that have much smaller leaves, uh, I doubt that that's ever going to be an issue. But, uh, again, I believe in leaving the leaves, but I also believe in running over with the lawnmower and chopping them up just a little bit. But uh, that's the best free mulch you'll ever find. If your neighbors are dumb enough to leave their leaves out on the curb for the garbage man, go grab those bags and put them on your you're hard and mow them and then then watch those people uh go out and buy mulch in the spring when you're just using the mulch that they were going to throw away so uh no i i wouldn't worry about it and maybe if i had a giant uh red oak tree or a big sycamore or something like that that has really big leaves um i guess it could it could form something of a of a weed block area but i've I've never seen that happen. Maybe maybe with a giant red oak, but I, I certainly wouldn't worry about it. I don't think it's any concern. And uh, I'd, I'd chop up the leaves if you can, but otherwise just leave them. And uh, we're not likely to have snow or not likely to have enough rain. It's ever going to be much of a problem. So uh, let those northern people worry about it. We don't we don't have to worry about those things, E.T. Okay. Okay, another question. Uh, the bird bass and animals' water dishes. They pick up or collect a whole bunch of moths. Occasionally, I have to clean them out. Can I just take that greenest slime, slime and give it to the plants? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, you know potted plants? Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, you know, just I, I don't know what kind of bird bath you have, but I tend to just, you know, take a brush or something, scrub around in there a little bit, and then just rinse it out good with water and uh I've always got nice green grass underneath the bird baths, so or green plants, not always grass, but uh, there's certainly nothing negative about that. And mixed in with some other things that accumulate in that water, it's it's certainly not harmful in any way. Okay, and uh, you just talk about catching squirrels. Well, I got some um, armadillos, and I got a couple of raccoons. And if I put them, catch them in a live trap, I'll start down the road. We'd have to take them. So they'll pull a lassie on me and come on back. I'd go 10 miles. 
10 miles. Uh, yeah, 10 miles or across a big river, one or the other. And by the way, if you're catching raccoons, I discovered a friend told me that uh, they can't resist marshmallows. That's the best bait I've ever found for a raccoon is marshmallows. They just can't resist them. Armadillos are a whole different story, but uh, armadillos I'd probably take five miles. Uh, raccoons I'd probably take 10 miles. Yeah, because like I say, I mean, uh, back when I had my dog, I had Jack Russell Terrier named Leo, and he always would take care of them all, you know. But, but these cats, you know, it's, yeah, they're just kind of invaded the yards, though. Well, you need to take over Leo's job, and uh, I know you do a good job of it, E.T. You, you have a wonderful weekend, and I appreciate the call. And uh, let's finish calls up with Cheryl today. Good morning, Cheryl. Hello, Bob. Uh, Hi there. Just don't have a question, but I wanted to let you know about the Nature Show on PBS about uh-huh. woodpeckers and how beneficial they are to other birds and even small animals that can use the holes they dug out. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then when the trees are so full of holes that they finally fall, the insects provide food for mammals. And sure. It's just the most fascinating thing I've seen <laughs> on TV in a long time. It's funny you mentioned. You know about it. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that because we've been watching a ladderback uh, woodpecker. Uh, I don't see a lot of woodpeckers, but been putting out that flaming hot uh, seed cylinder that Mr. Bird uh, makes, and yeah. uh, the the other the the raccoons and squirrels won't go anywhere near but that they flaming won't. hot. I use that stuff. <laughs> yeah. But that uh, it is true. Woodpeckers really—they're good for your trees because they, you know, they actually hear and can penetrate through the yeah. bark to get borers and things like that. Now the sap suckers also are not quite as beneficial to the trees, but the nesting cavities that they provide—they uh, um, certainly are beneficial to a lot of different things. And uh, Cheryl, I appreciate you sharing that and bringing it up. We will look for it. And I've got a couple of minutes I want to take uh, just talking about nature and things like that. Next weekend, next Saturday, is the big Nature Fest down at Mission County Park. And uh, this is put on by the Green Spaces Alliance. Sort of three things. Uh, There's a Run the River Marathon beforehand. And then they have what they call a Challenge Walk that's a little bit less strenuous. And then they have their big nature fair. They've got like 30 different exhibitors down there. It's kind of like what Earth Day was intended to be, but so many places just kind of got away from that and commercialized it. But this is uh, like 30 different groups, organizations, people that have something to offer uh, is both information and some products. And this all happens next weekend. Uh, you can go to naturefest.org, I believe, or just go to the Green Spaces Alliance website, and uh, you'll find out all about it. It goes from uh, 9 o'clock in the morning till 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And by the way, the day before, they're actually doing a cleanup uh, on a section of the river down there. So, again, check out the website if you'd like to help and participate that in that. Green Spaces Alliance is one of the... Uh, just outstanding. They're what we call an urban land trust. They've done so much uh, with getting community gardens established in the area. And this is, I believe this is the first time they've done the Nature Fest. Now, I do have to say that due to a conflict, I'd originally been told there was going to be a Black Hawk helicopter out there that kids especially would really enjoy seeing. And unfortunately, it looks like that's not going to happen because of previous commitments. But it will be a wonderful event. If you're going to run in the marathon, you will want to register, and there is an entry fee for that. 
but the Nature Fest in general is absolutely free. Plenty of free parking down there. So uh, if you if you want to get acquainted with a really good organization and want to support a really good event, it's Nature Fest. Uh, it's next Saturday, and it's from 9 until 1. All right. Having said that, let me just remind you that uh, it's a great time to fertilize your entire landscape. It will be a real good way to spend a Sunday afternoon or a few minutes of a Sunday afternoon. Any of the good organic fertilizers will work well for grass and trees and shrubs, will improve the cold hardiness of your plants, and will also help them absorb and use the uh, process, the nutrients that they need to put on a good, strong burst of growth next spring. And once again, Thanksgiving's just a couple of weeks away. Don't wait until the last minute to make your yard beautiful. If you're having friends or family over or whatever and you want to really have things looking nice, you want to you want to work on the landscape a little bit before that. And uh, great time to be planting pansies and Johnny Jump Ups and petunias and dianthus and snapdragons and things out in the sun. Great time to be planting ornamental cabbage and kale in the sun as well. And then over there in the shady areas, again, more of the ornamental cabbage and kale uh, and, you know, plenty of cyclamen and lots of other fun things out there. So don't be sitting inside <laughs> watching sports this afternoon get out in your yard where good gardeners belong and uh, enjoy it